Smarties, today we are super excited to welcome Carol Stock Kranowitz. She is the author of The Out of Sync Child, Recognizing and Coping with Sensory Processing Disorder. She has written the book. This is the book on sensory processing disorder. In this episode, we talk about how we are all processing our senses all the time. She talks us through her story, explains sensory processing disorder and all the sensations that come in and how we use our central nervous system to understand these sensations to help us survive. She talks about how sensory processing disorder is like a traffic jam in the brain. And she talks about the differences between inside and outside senses, how to observe what your child is craving and avoiding and the modulation issues that result from those interactions. She also talks about how all of this plays out in the classroom and what we can do about it. Smarties, as you guys know, Steph and I are both hiring. I am hiring a CAP educational therapy group in Beverly Hills, where we specialize in learners with ADHD and or executive functioning challenges. And Steph is hiring in Redondo Beach at My Ed Therapist, where her practice focuses on all the things. So if you are local to us in Southern California. We would love to hear from you. You can get more information about what we're looking for on our websites, www.capedtherapy, K-A-P-P, edtherapy.com, and www.myedtherapist.com. Let's dig in. You want to learn faster, but sometimes working harder is just not the answer you have to learn smarter the educational therapy podcast hi smarties welcome to episode 195 of learn smarter the educational therapy podcast i'm stephanie pitts and i'm rachel cap we are thrilled to have author carol kranowitz with us today hi hi hello rachel and stephanie and everyone out there <laughs> Thank you so much. We should come into this podcast from a place of we have a dream list of who we want on the podcast. Steph has put you on our list, and I wanted you too, of course, but Steph put you on our list from like Mm -hmm. day one. So when she told me that we were booked and it was happening, I was like, huge guest. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. You have a lot of interesting things that nobody else has said and just changed a lot of people's lives. And I think people who haven't heard yet about this or don't know what to call it are going to really be impacted. So I'm thrilled. So thank you. Wonderful. Happy to share what I know. Okay. So we love, instead of reading off a bio, we would love to just hear who you are and what you do. Yeah. (laughs) So I was an English major at college and wanted to be a dancer on the Broadway chorus line. That didn't work out. I love that. I love that. But I always have loved and needed to move. Got married, moved to Washington, D.C., had two typical little boys who attended a wonderful neighborhood nursery school called St. Columbus Nursery School. And uh, it was not a co-op, but I asked the director if she could use a movement teacher And she said, yes, you're hired. And I said, well, wait, not so fast. You know, I don't know anything about this. I don't know anything about educating little kids. She said, oh, you'll learn on the job. (laughs) So this was this was in the dark ages. This was 1976. And in in those days, independent schools could hire anybody they wanted to. So I say this because I was blessed with total ignorance. I did not have any preconceived ideas about development. I didn't think about development. I had these little boys, they grew, they walked, you know, they did stuff. And then I got to this school, which was, it's a very welcoming school and square pegs are welcome. (laughs) I found that I was very successful with my movement and my music and my obstacle courses and the other stuff I did around the school with all the children, including the ones with braces, helmets, amputees, deafness, blindness, the observable disabilities didn't stop these kids from 
loving childhood and I learned how to make all kinds of accommodations for them. So I I remember one little kid who wanted to somersault and she had a head injury and she needed to wear a helmet. So I talked to her physical therapist who explained to me how to support the child with the helmet on and help her do this flip on the mat. And, you know, I just loved it. I loved it. I mean, who wouldn't love seeing the joy and success on a child's face too. Absolutely. The ones that were out of sync didn't have any observable issue. They were physically formed. And yet there were these kids who would not touch anything messy. There were kids who had such tactile issues, they wouldn't touch anything not messy. So Okay, mud, so little Stephanie doesn't like mud, but there would be kids who wouldn't even touch the wooden rhythm sticks. There's nothing messy about that. But to them, I learned, have you ever picked up kids' rhythm sticks, these wooden sticks, and they have ridges on them? Yes. Not okay. Potentially dangerous in the viewpoint of the child with extreme tactile over-responsivity. That's just one example. So, you know, you look at this kid, he talks, he walks, he has loving parents, he, he's not in rags, he doesn't look a tree. He, so 10 years went by. I asked a lot of questions and I was teaching with other experienced teachers, but they didn't have answers. And 10 years went by, and then in the mid-80s, a pediatric occupational therapist came to our school to do a workshop. And her name is Liz, Lynn Balzer-Martin. Lynn gave this 90-minute workshop on sensory integration dysfunction, which is, I guess, the same as sensory processing disorder, but we've changed the terminology. It blew me away. So I said, this explains everything to me. You're showing me patterns that I hadn't seen before because I didn't connect Stephanie's avoidance of bumpy socks to the avoidance of the sandbox to the fact that she only ate strained applesauce and didn't like a stiff breeze outside blowing in her hair. I didn't get the connection. And this OT had said that think skin is our largest organ geographically. And think about if you have a tactile issue where your central nervous system is unable to interpret messages coming through those tactile receptors the behavior is going to be aversive. Mm-hmm. So, oh, skin, it, you know, bingo. It just made so much sense with the other senses, the vestibular sense, the child who doesn't realize he's falling. So he's on the ground half the time. It's like he's tripping on air. These kids would fall and we teachers would run to see if they needed their shoelaces tied. No, that wasn't the issue. They just would fall okay so i'm coming to the end of this very long (laughs) i'm sorry no but we've learned a lot in the process already (laughs) so anyway i became her protege and she taught me everything and i said well where's the books for me you're giving me textbooks and you're giving me your assessments for parents to read after you've diagnosed children but I don't understand what co-contraction is. And I don't get what vestibular proprioceptive, I don't understand. So I started with a glossary for myself. And then I started painting little written pictures, little stories. And some were based on my students and some I made up. And that's how the book started. And I used to swim a lot and I would go to the pool and I had a towel and a pad and a paper at the end of the pool, and I would do a lap and dry my hand and write something down and then do another lap. (laughs) I would write something, another story or another point I wanted to. That is a writing technique we have not talked about on the podcast yet. (laughs) (laughs) So that's a point that I want to make to all our listeners, too, that movement is learning. Movement is how we get our thoughts connected and 
make those associations and those great ahas come when we're moving and and when we're not listening to a podcast at the same time, but when we're just letting our thoughts wander a little bit. I do that a lot. That's how I got started. I love it. Thank you for sharing that. And just so you know, you and I have a lot in common because I also started out as a preschool teacher. And the reason I went into educational therapy was because I would see all these learners who were taking in information in different ways. And I had many kids who tripped over air, as you said, and they'd be on their own, nothing around them and they'd fall. And, you know, we just thought they were clumsy and to a certain extent they were, but you know, even knowing everything that we know now, this wasn't at the forefront of our conversations as preschool teachers. It is at the forefront of conversations that I have as an educational therapist, but I think this information is really, really critically important to get out there. And you've written the book on it. So we want to talk a little bit about the book. Your book is The Out of Sync Child's Recognizing and Coping with Sensory Processing Disorder. And it's so readable and so easy to go exactly where you want to go, which I love in a book. But why don't we start at the basics of how would you define sensory processing disorder and and talk a little bit about the differences even within the diagnosis, how it can present differently within the diagnosis. I do also want to talk about my segue lately into the InSync child because um, my colleague and I, Joy Newman, are we have worked a lot with kids with special needs. I'm not a therapist. I'm a teacher. But we feel that all children need the kinds of experiences to help them grow gracefully and competently. All right, so let's see if I can put this in a nutshell. Sensory processing is what we all have. That's where we take in sensations from our bodies and from the environment around us. This information comes through our receptors, which could be our skin or our eyes or our inner ear. And uh, the information goes to our brain, which says, oh, uh, you're going upstairs you're stubbing your toe, you are off balance. And our brain says, okay, got it. I better hold on to the banister. I better not uh, push my foot so far deep on this tread because it bumps into the back of the stair. So, you know, we make all these little adjustments, not consciously, but to help us function sensations come in and then we use our central nervous system to understand those sensations so that we can survive. I love that definition. Survival is the only thing nature has in mind. It just basically wants us to be able to make more babies. So we have to survive long enough to do that. So we have to be able to function, to pull our hand back from the hot fire, not fall over the cliff, clap our hands over our ears if uh, there's a screeching sound that's going to make us deaf. We do instinctive things to protect ourselves for survival. Once we feel safe, once all that sensory processing is saying, okay, you're, you have stopped stubbing your toe, you are holding up the benefits, you're doing fine. Then we can use our senses for discriminating what's going on around us. And if I'm just going up the stairs image, we can hear the singing going on upstairs. Oh, yeah, that's, that's where I'm headed. I'm headed toward the singing up there. And, oh, it's sort of far away. I bet it's down at the end of the hall. You know, we can use our judgment of where we are in space and what's happening around us to solve the problem. Okay, sensory processing disorder is when all those sensations come in and there's what uh, Dr. Jean Ayers, who was the uh, occupational therapist in the 20th century who um, developed the theory of sensory integration and sensory processing and therapy, Dr. Ayers 
calls it like a traffic jam in the brain. And that's when little Stephanie says that her bumpy socks hurt. So those socks wouldn't hurt little Carol. I didn't pay attention to seams and socks. You were trying to say to mommy, there's something really uncomfortable about this. My brain is saying, get these socks off so I can be more comfortable so I can survive, mom. (laughs) We have eight senses. People know about seeing, hearing, smelling, touching, and tasting. Those are the five senses that Aristotle came up with. Now, we've come a far away from Aristotle. Some people will say there are over 20 senses. I'm happy to sit with eight. (laughs) So besides seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, and touching, we have the vestibular sense, and the, the receptors are in our inner ear. So hearing is the receptor is the outer ear. The inner ear is where we know about our balance and whether we're sitting, standing, lying down, jumping. Our vestibular sense tells us when our head position changes its position in relation to the surface of the earth. Very, very important that our vestibular sense be smooth and be giving us information that we can regulate. No, so we catch ourselves when we feel ourselves start to fall. That's when you feel dizzy. So if we've had too many Mai Tais and we're on a on a boat <laughs> on in a the Gulf margaritas, <laughs> yeah, margaritas <laughs> right, in the Gulf of Mexico and we're going over the choppy waves, our vestibular sense is saying, oh, whoa, whoa, no, no, no. <laughs> too much, too no. much. <laughs> but that could be the way some people with a atypical vestibular sense feel when they walk across the playground. You know, they can just feel like it's so dizzy out here. And that's why I'm hanging on to the wall or clinging to the teacher's knee. Or if I'm a teenager sitting stuck on the couch. That's so interesting. I didn't even think about that. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Then we have the proprioceptive sense. And this is the sensations that come from our muscles and joints. And so when we stretch, extend our arms, for instance, and move that way, we are getting information into our muscles and joints. And it's saying, oh, good, this feels good. Proprioception always feels good. When we flex, we know that too. Believe it or not, there are some people who struggle to know when they're flexing and bending. These are people who have proprioceptive issues, are the ones who could not get dressed in the dark closet. By the time you're eight, you should be able to know how to feel your jeans and stick your leg in where you think your leg ought to go. A person with proprioceptive issues needs to see everything that his body parts are doing. Hmm. Yeah. Fascinating. The eighth sense is the interoceptive sense, and that is the conscious but mostly unconscious awareness of our internal organs. So we're conscious of our bladder, for instance, and our stomach. We know when we're full or empty or need to empty. We know when we're sweating and we take us, our sweater off. We know when our heart's racing. Uh, we know when we're thirsty. But we don't know what our liver is doing or our gallbladder. But all these things have to be running smoothly for the rest of us to be smooth. In it, So we have the external senses, smelling, hearing, seeing, tasting, and touching. Something has to come to us from out there. And then we have the body-centered senses, which are the vestibular, the proprioceptive, and the interoceptive system that nobody else knows about but us. So when we say, I am dizzy, I refuse to get on the merry-go-round at the playground, when you're two years old, it's really hard to explain (laughs) to somebody (laughs) that my vestibular sense is off, mom. Or think of little kids who have bladder issues. They pee all the time. They do not have in 
good interoception. They do not have that awareness that their bladder is full. These might be the same kids who get cranky every three or four hours. They don't know that they're hungry. So we have to do that interoceptive thinking for them sometimes to help them to become more aware of that kind of thing. I've never thought of this in terms of what somebody can see and what somebody can feel. I respond really well to simple, a visual cue like that. And that's so relatable and easy for people to understand because you're right. As a parent, I'm constantly like, I think you're tired. Look at your eyes. You're rubbing your eyes, but I'm not in his body, right? Right. It's very, very interesting to sort of categorize them in that way. I was going to say when you have a baby like you do that, you know, can't, verbalize what's going on or have any sense. And then as the kids get older, the ones that still can't verbalize exactly what's going on because they don't know, this is something that, you know, in in general shows up for us as educational therapists all the time, just having to do with assignments and why are they hard and why is this school a struggle and why is it so hard to sit there for so many hours and all those things. It's prevalent and showing up when they're little, it just looks a little bit different. And it's fascinating to me because I think there's a lot of kids that struggle with this. Right. I say to parents, if your child's behavior looks inscrutable, I put on these, well, your listeners can't see my crazy glasses that I got at the yeah. <laughs> Oh. My gosh, they're amazing. I don't even know how to describe it. They're like little hibiscus. Four-leaf clovers. Oh, yeah. Or, but they're like pink with like yellow on the inside. <laughs> Clown size. Way oversized. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> they're amazing. I got them at the party store. Yeah. Uh, these funny goggles. I say, put on your imaginary sensory spectacles and uh, look at your child's behavior. Ask yourself a couple of questions. What sensations is my child avoiding? What sensations is my child craving? What sensations help my child, whether he seems to go for it or not? You might have noticed that a child is soothed in a hammock, but the child might not be able to express that that is soothing. So we have to, to kind of take note of these little kids because when they're little, they cannot articulate what's going on. I think those are uh, helpful questions. What's my child avoiding? What is my child craving? And what does he need that he doesn't know he needs? <laughs> Another thing to do is think skin, inner ear, muscles, and joints. These are the body-centered things you can't see. I mean, if a child says, ick, disgusting, when the ripe banana comes close to him, you get a pretty clear picture. He doesn't like the smell of, of that. But when he's not getting on the swing and he's miserable at the playground, think inner ear. He just needs his feet to be on the ground. This child cannot feel as if he's safe if his feet are off the ground. Think skin, Stephanie's bumpy socks. Think muscles and joints. If you're just pulling your hair out because your five-year-old can't get into his jacket by himself and all the other kindergartners can, does any child wake up in the morning and think, how am I going to sabotage the teacher's program this morning? And before I do that, press every one of mommy and daddy's buttons at the breakfast table. How am I going to do that? No. Kids wake up in the morning and they think, I'm going to try so hard to get it right today. And then we scold them. Hurry up. You're slow. Hurry up. The bus is coming. And then by the end of the day, you know, I saw a meme this morning. I have to just throw this out there because I just felt like I related to it so much. And it's the, you know, the 8 a.m., 9 a.m. Oh, tonight I'm going to make chicken with broccoli and, you know, this healthy meal and then 6.30 p.m. rolls around and it's, hi, I need to order some pizza. Mm -hmm. Right? Uh -huh. The best intentions, uh -huh. but sometimes it just can't happen. Right. Right. <laughs> and, you know, fatigue and the end of the day is true at any time. And in this COVID world, it's unconceivable 
how difficult it is for people with young families. It's also a limitation of English language, right? That we don't have a word for outside the body, inside the body in this way. Right. Right? Because if we could give language to it, we can describe, we can communicate about it, but we don't have a word for it. So, right. Vocabulary and terminology is important. And, you know, you think of the kid who is wetting the bed all the time. How can he say, I don't feel fullness in my bladder? It's not something that a kid can say. No. Especially if it's not there. The absence of it. Say, my feet hurt. But Tommy, who wets the bed, can't say, I don't feel my bladder. That's one of our questions that we had for you is it's about over-responsivity and under-responsivity. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Okay, so we've got eight senses. And here are some of the things that can go awry. The most common issue of people with sensory processing challenges is over-responsivity. Then the most common is tactile over-responsivity. There can also be auditory over-responsivity. That's a popular one. Um, Vestibular over-responsivity. That would be the child who doesn't want his feet to leave the ground. The person with over-responsivity to one or two or five or eight sensory systems will avoid daily experiences that are difficult to interpret and manage and respond to. So we get the avoider, and that works out in the classroom. Uh, The child might spend a lot of time under the table or with his hands over his ears or arms folded and um, looking like he's mad and just doesn't want anybody coming close to him. That is called a modulation problem. Another modulation problem, which modulation is regulation. Another modulation issue is under responsivity. So this could be the child who is not aware that his diaper is wet or that he has swallowed a bolus, you know, a chunk of food without chewing it sufficiently or that he's talking too loudly. This kid doesn't regulate or modulate sensations from out there or from his own body. I call that child the sensory straggler. Hmm. He disregards a lot of sensations around him. And he's the one who says, what? Wait, wait, what? And he's always playing catch up. Then there's the sensory craver who never gets enough, more swinging, more popcorn in his mouth, more noise, more, uh, uh, uh. this is insatiable, insatiable, insatiable. Good word. Addicted to sensory input. Never, he can never, never, never get enough. Okay. So those three, over-responsivity, under-responsivity, and craving are modulation in, in the modulation category. Then there's another category of sensory processing disorder, and that's sensory discrimination issues. This person may or may not have modulation issues. In other words, the kid doesn't crave jumping and is not worried about mud pies. Everything is fine that way. But he doesn't really get it. He doesn't make good judgments about is this heavy or not heavy, so he picks up the the bucket of water and he can't make that judgment to visually or through proprioception through his muscles and joints or tactily through his hand. He can't make the judgment of how much water is in that bucket. So he picks it up with too much force and the water goes all over the place or not enough. And his fingers come up, leaving the bucket on the floor. He doesn't hoist it enough. These are kids that will break toys. Uh, They don't know how much effort to exert, or they have trouble with Legos. You'll see kids pushing and pulling and 
intensely working on Legos where you think all you have to do is put pick up the pieces and you put them together. And they're... Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I immediately thought of pencils. The kids that break pencils or the kids that press so hard that it rips the paper. Perfect example. So Mrs. Donovan, the teacher, she's been teaching for 35 years and she's had kids like this before. They're just goofing around, right? They, if they would just put their minds to it, they wouldn't have these. If they would just. If they would just. Discrimination issues. So the, the kid can't tell the difference between a B and a D visually. It's not dyslexia. It's different from dyslexia. So letters are confused. If uh, there's a picture upside down, say uh, you have a picture of a hammer. Well, to children who have visual discrimination issues, they have to turn the picture around to see the hammer the way they originally met that hammer. There's something called form constancy, which means that a hammer is a hammer is a hammer. And these kids, they're stuck. Auditory discrimination, consonants at the beginnings and ends of words get confused. So bed sounds like dead. Rug sounds like bug. So they're constantly misinterpreting what other children are saying. Conversations then get derailed. Social cues, again, they're considered stupid or uh, not paying attention. And it's because bug came in through the outer ear, went to the central nervous system, to the brain, and somehow came back out feeling as if the kid had heard tug, something different. Okay, so you can have discrimination issues, getting sensory messages within a sensory system mixed up. Oh, here's another common one, wet and cold. Mm -hmm. Mark uh, put on his pajamas the other night and he said, something's wet. And it was the snap. Mm -hmm. The snap was cold and he thought it was wet. I, now, don't worry about Mark. He's fine. He's just, it's common. And a lot of kids in the, here's a hint for parents, uh, in the wintertime when it's kind of cold, kid gets out of the bathtub and he might complain about the towel. I've heard of kids saying this towel is wet. It's not. It's cold or it's room temperature compared to his, his skin coming out of the tub. So a tip is take the towel just before he's going to get out and run it through the dryer for a few minutes. And then it comes to nice and warm. Yeah. I want someone doing that for me. Yeah, I know. I know. I know. Well, you know, those fancy hotels that have the pipes, what you can get a towel warmer for your house. I have done a deep dive on this. I just haven't told Steph about it yet. And I'm already in the mindset of like, how do I make this happen in my bathroom? Because I just found out that this was an opportunity. We've seen all the signs and signals. Now we've given language to some of this. Oh, did you want to add something? Sorry. There are three categories. One is modulation. One is discrimination. And a third category is sensory-based motor skills. And this involves... One of the subtypes is posture, and we need proprioception, a good vestibular system, and tactile awareness to be aware that we're upright and in the optimum position to face what's coming at us. Nature wants us centered and upright, not folded over, not with head cocked, which you'll see if binocularity is not. Working well, you'll see kids who are favoring one eye over the other, not preferring one ear with the head cocked a certain way, so one ear is forward. We want to be ready, and the readiest position is upright and forward. Okay, so posture is very important, and the senses help us maintain our sturdy, upright, ready position. Uh, look at kids who have trouble changing position as they go through a, an obstacle course at the playground. You'll see the typical kids sliding down the slide, bending over to get on all fours to crawl through the tunnel. Then they come out, they stand up, they go on the balance beam, then they go up the ladder. You know, they're constantly moving and moving and moving. They make these adjustments with good sensory processing. The child with SPD 
will take much, much longer because he's got to be more conscious of what position to get into, what foot to step forward with. It's uh, much more physically challenging. And then the, another subtype of this third category is dyspraxia. And praxis is uh, when we are faced with something new, like putting on a, a seatbelt in a car that we've never been in before. We have to work at it. and We look at it and we tug on it and we feel it and we, we use our senses to get the job done. And then the next time we do it, it's a lot easier. We're dyspraxic the first time, but we're not dyspraxic subsequently. Kids with SPD will have a very hard time figuring out that seatbelt. And it might take them 17 times out of 20 until they get it smooth. So, of course, you know, they want someone else to do it for them. And we can't do that. We must make it possible with more time and lots and lots of patience to let them work on it themselves. So we're all dyspraxic from some time to time. Kids with SPD are dyspraxic much, much, much more often. That means all their new experiences are daunting. Eating a sandwich that mommy cut into rectangles instead of triangles. Well, maybe that's an extreme. Putting on new clothes climbing into the school bus, getting in and out of seats, reaching for something in the closet, hanging a coat up in the closet, turning the newspaper, folding the newspaper. And so that's why a lot of kids who have underlying sensory issues are clumsy and seem to be careless, seem to be thoughtless, but it's difficult for them. So with our sensory spectacles on, we can say, what are the sensory parts that makes hanging a coat up on a hanger in the closet so difficult. Could it be visual? Could it be tactile? Could it be proprioceptive? It could be vestibular because the child, if he's little, he's got to lift his head up and that affects his balance. Gosh, apply what you know about the senses to every task that's difficult for your child. And you might see four or five sensory systems that are underlying the problem. Hmm. Now I'm done. <laughs> interesting because yeah all the different things that can go on yeah. at once and you don't think about it or you don't understand it or know how to name it and you can't parse it out necessarily right so what were you going to ask Rach well I think we wanted to have a conversation with you about what this looks like in the classroom. A lot of our audience are parents or other learning specialists or teachers and I think Given that this is sort of a platform to have that conversation with them, what would you want them to know? For older kids, not like preschool kids, more like elementary, middle, high school. Okay. Uh, looking at uh, kids in elementary school with sensory issues that have not been recognized, we can probably see high anxiety. I think that's almost a given. Low self-esteem. The child feels that he's slower or clumsier than everybody else, and he doesn't get stuff as easily as other kids, even though this child might be doing calculus at the age of... Brilliant, yeah. Mm -hmm. Brilliant, right? Using tools can be difficult because of the fine motor skills that are affected by sensory issues. Teamwork, being in a club or in a learning group with other kids can be difficult because they're so close and unpredictable. So anyway, that anxiety and that low self-esteem, while they don't have a direct connection to the tactile, to, to skin, it's the psychological fallout. Yeah. And, you know, my dream would be for teachers to understand these eight sensory systems and see how many variables there are and understand that Monday might be not such a good teaching day for these kids. Friday might be a great teaching day, for instance. And golly, you can get so much mileage out of a child with a little bit of understanding. And you know this, you have kids and you were kids. Uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> Stephanie, before you said, gee, I can see you're tired because your eyes are tired. How, 
what a gift that is for a child if a teacher would say, looks like you're feeling kind of crowded. One adult say he just adored his third grade teacher because she gave him two desks. He had a desk, an empty desk at the back of the room, and she liked him up close front, but sometimes there was too much going on around him. And she would let him go to the back and sit quietly in the back of the room. She also put a pacing path down. She took some masking. Where he was allowed to pace. And in the back of the room. I have that for Adam. Yeah. <laughs> I have that for my husband. <laughs> okay. There you yeah. go. And, you know, it's off to the side. It's not distracting the other people. Yeah. There are other things. You can have a therapy ball for the child to sit on instead of that tippy school chair. The child with vestibular issues is doesn't want to say, oh, Mrs. O'Connor, only three feet of my chair are touching the floor at any one time. And I feel like I'm falling off the face of the earth. And please understand, this is a primal fear. I'm not making this up out of nothing. I don't want to fall, you know, give the child a therapy ball. When I introduced that idea to some teachers, it's crazy. The fidgety kid on a therapy ball that he can bounce around on, counterintuitive as it seems, that moving helps the child get centered. And anyway, this is a tea stool for our listeners. Just imagine two pieces of two by four stuck together in a T shape with two sturdy wood screws at the top. And so it's got one leg. So you sit on the top piece of two by four, the horizontal piece, and you make a tripod with your two feet and the one leg of the tea stool. You can teach anything in the world to a child sitting on a tea stool. Huh. I found that out. They are centered. It's like someone comes along and zips up their vertebra and they go mm. and they sit upright, eyes forward, ears forward, hands ready, feet steady on the floor and they can sway on their tea stool or therapy ball. They can go back and forth if they want to, but they will pay attention. And teachers might say, oh, I don't have room and I can't. So the answer to that is, well, you have room for one or two therapy balls or tea stools. Probably you can find space in the classroom for one or two. Not every child needs one, but offer these, um, these things to kids who need them and everything in the classroom will go a lot more smoothly. Mm -hmm. I can see that for sure. <laughs> I mean, even in every room, we have a wobble chair and a lot of the kids choose the wobble chair. Some kids choose to do work on the trampoline, literally sitting on it or laying on it. And that is the choice for them to be the most productive and how they want to receive information and talk. Yeah. And I often say the kids that do that, I tell the parents, you know, get something like this at home. It'll probably make everyone's life a lot better. Exactly. Trampoline is just wonderful. Even lying on it, as you said, Rachel, that's so interesting. There's still movement. Rubber responds to the breath of the child and there's still a little bit. And for the kid who has vestibular over-responsivity, a little goes a long way. They, they don't want to jump on it. They might just want to lie on it. And then for those who do want it, they can jiggle and wiggle and bounce and, and get it. That's terrific. And it's not all the same all the time, right? Like it goes through phases, goes through what are they going to do for a couple of weeks? They change it up or it might be different throughout the hour. It just, they know that it's there. And if they want to grab it, they just grab it. So some kids just change positions three or four times where they're sitting and what they're doing throughout 50 minutes. So taking that whole thing into account of like, just where your body is being in order to be ready to do what you need to do is the most basic thing that can change a lot. I love this, where your body is being. That is so true. And upside down, how about that? Some kids you've seen really need to be upside down. Well, we think 
that's funny. Why are you doing that? Uh, some children might get scolded for doing that. And what is with our sensory spectacles on, we might be able to say, hmm, think inner ear. That is an intense vestibular position for intense vestibular input being upside down. I don't like it. I'm at the point in my life where, you know, I get I get up and down very slowly. I can't do it quickly. But some kids love moving their head positions, love spinning and spinning and spinning and getting intense input. I, I was on an airplane and uh, mom and child were there. The boy was, I guess, 10-ish. And uh, we hadn't taken off yet. And uh, he was on his head and his feet extended above the back of the chair in front of him. And the mom was reading a magazine and the boy's upside down. And the stewardess came along and said, oh, young man, you have to uh, sit down. And from down on the floor, he said, oh, we have a few more minutes, right? Oh, no, 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 no. You, you just have to do this right away. And the, she was, the stewardess was adamant. And the child said up to the stewardess, well, if you let me be in this position for as long as possible until we start moving, it will be a much better ride for me and for you too. No kidding. <laughs> yeah, he was so articulate. So I thought that was pretty good. And the mother said, "Let just let him be. He'll be. He'll put on the seatbelt in a minute." Wow. And she did. Yeah. She let the stewardess oh, finally let him. Good. Yeah. Good. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Well, I feel like I've learned so much and just taking it all in and just and understanding what can go on at any given moment for any of us. You know myself included versus, you know, the kids that I'm seeing or what people are experiencing in the classroom and all of that and all the different ways that if you think about input and how it's being discriminated and what the reaction is can really show up in a lot of different ways, a lot of different behaviors, a lot of different meltdowns, a lot of avoidance, a lot of extra of something that if we really do take a step back and ask the good question, why, why is this happening? And getting some answers and making some, sometimes could be just such minor adjustments can make a huge difference for our learners. That's right. And I think start with the idea that, it, that it's physical mm -hmm. and it's not willful. A child is not willfully behaving in atypical ways. The child wants to be a regular kid and has to survive. So if it means that his behavior is interfering with the classroom, let's fix it. Let's figure it out. Does he need more space? Does he need not time out, but time in? Lucy Jane Miller, who uh, was one of Jean Eyre's disciples and was the director of the Star Institute in, in Denver for many years. She, she recently retired from that position. But um, Lucy Jane Miller talks about time in, I-N-N. -N. It could be the same stool in the corner <laughs> or, or, you know, a place aside, uh, uh, slightly apart from the hustle and bustle of the other kids in the classroom. But instead of being a punitive place where a child goes to be punished, it could be a place where the teacher would say, Charlie, I think maybe a few minutes in the time in chair would be really nice. And you'll, you know, just, I think you need a little space, don't you? And he might be so grateful. Yes, that's all he needs just to just not have everybody around him so much. Then the teacher checks in with him and then she says, are you ready? And he'll be ready instead of, yeah, Charlie, off you go. Yeah. So that kind of thing is, is really nice to have. Teachers who have a timeout chair in the outside corridor will get kids who will misbehave in order mm -hmm. to be sent to that chair so that they do have that, that place, that little asylum out there in the corridor where the kid is physically having some challenges. With that kind of thinking, it can help. And then we've got to get our kids moving. There's altogether too much sedentary life. COVID has exacerbated that problem a thousandfold. And in the classroom, 
as a friend of mine says, when the fan gets dirty, if you think that's funny. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Uh, When a lot of stuff is happening, it's probably fixable some movement. In their seats, children can stretch their chair and they can push themselves up. That's a little activity we call levitation edges of your chair and see if you can get your butt off your chair and hang in space for a minute. You have to have some upper body strength there, Carol. <laughs> right. <for> that. <laughs> That's fancy. Or stamp on the floor or press your feet really hard into the floor for a while. These are in-sync activities that Joy Newman and I are writing about and publishing. And we have an in-sync child method for those tight moments where a child needs to move in order to become more attentive and actually to relax afterwards and uh, develop sensory skills and perceptual motor skills and visual skills. So there's a whole host of things that teachers can do very easily. Maybe this is not the right time to go there. We will invite you back for that conversation about the InSync Child. Yes, we have a book on it. It's called Growing an InSync Child. Oh, great. We have a new thing that's coming out in March. It's in Italian. The English version is a year of mini moves for the InSync child. And these are weekly schedules where each day of the week, there's one suggestion of a little quick activity to do. That's great. Like uh, hop over to something square and put your elbow on it. Yeah. All those little fun things for little kids. Yeah, lots of little fun things. We will happily bring you back to talk more in depth about that. Great. But we just wanted to thank you so much for taking the time and being so descriptive and giving us the benefit of your experience and absolutely recommend the Out of Sync Child thank you. for our audience. We will link that in the show notes. Thank you. And Carol, if our audience wants to get in touch with you, is there a good way to do that? Carol Stock. Granowitz.com. We'll link it in the show notes. And would you mind saying our signature sign off? Have a great week, Smarties. (laughs) (laughs) That was was awesome. (laughs) Have a great week. Thank you, Rachel and Stephanie. See you soon. Thank you. 